The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The last weekend of July 2020, the summer that never really got going. Here's a story you're not going to see on the front page, but is in fact bigger than anything on the front page because it's a portent of tomorrow. From the Financial Times, Australia taps China knowledge boom despite espionage fears. Number of partnerships on scientific research increased 13% last year. Oh, fancy that. China has overtaken the United States as Australia's principal research partner. And look at the phrase they use in that headline, by the way. Australia taps China knowledge boom. 20 years ago, the geniuses of the Chamber of Commerce right told us, uh, forget about making widgets again. Forget about manufacturing. That's never going to happen. Uh, that's going to be made uh, cheaper overseas now and forever. So we're going to be the knowledge economy. And as I've been saying now for months, somehow China wound up with the knowledge economy too. So that according to the FT headline writer, Australia taps China knowledge boom. Furthermore, quote, Australia is more intensively engaged with China than with its other main research partners, the US, UK, Germany and Canada, despite growing concerns in Canberra about espionage, cyber attacks and intellectual property theft. You don't say. So Australia's other research partners, uh, two Commonwealth countries uh, with whom it shares a head of state and millions of social, cultural and family ties stretching back to first settlement, plus the principal English-speaking global power, its military ally, not just in world war, but in such thankless operations as Vietnam and Afghanistan. And then uh, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, Germany, the economic engine of the European Union. Yet somehow a totalitarian dictatorship, which is not a military ally and with whom there are minimal points of social and cultural commonality and which steals the nation's intellectual property as a matter of routine, has become Australia's principal scientific research partner. China. China, China, China. Talking about China. Doing something about China matters. And at one moment in the spring, before the death of George Floyd loosed the vaporization of the entirety of human history, it looked as if the Chinese coronavirus might usefully have brought the central issue of our age into focus through the simple fact that Mr and Mrs America suddenly were aware that, for example, all our medical needs from uh, the now mandatory face masks we're supposed to wear uh, to the bottle of industrial strength aspirin I need to get through the average half-wit network news bulletin, it's all made in China. And almost everything that isn't made in China, such as Dr. Tedros at the World Health Organization, is controlled by China. Uh, as I said on Rush a couple of months back, the WHO embodies the lunacy of the age. It's owned by China, but we pay for it. That's like almost all the other pillars of the post-1950 America-devised international global order. Owned by China, but we pay for it. So it looked for a moment as if for once 
America's uh, interminable two-year election campaign might actually be about something that mattered, the arrival of China as the dominant global power. We're not talking just about economic power, about GDP. We're talking about something bigger. Who gets his way in the world? So if you think back just four years to Marco Rubio's uh, sappy, soft-focus presidential campaign slogan about uh, a second American century. Uh, sorry, Marco, that ship has sailed. While we wasted the post-Soviet unipolar moment, China snaffled the world out from under us, including all the stuff Americans still think of as American like the NBA and X-Men 37. And for a moment we noticed, and then we went back to arguing about affirmative action symphony orchestras and whether J.K. Rowling should be allowed to suggest that menstruation is something to do with women. Uh, hey, any chance um, of uh, any of those painfully diverse, identity-obsessed CGI superhero Yornaroos uh, by Disney Marvel, Marvel Disney or whatever it's called now. Any chance of uh, those guys ever making a movie in which Spider-Man helps some of those brave folks on the streets of Hong Kong? Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Yeah, right. He's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And Hong Kong's in the neighborhood of Beijing, which Disney, Marvel and all the rest are keen to stay on the right side of because all those Far Eastern multiplexes are where the big bucks are. There are 1.4 billion Chinese. That's a fifth of the world's population. So if you're in the billion dollar crap business, that's where the money is. China man, China man, friendly neighborhood China man, spins a web round the globe while you're calling JK transphobe. Look out, here comes the China man. Is he strong? Listen bud, he's got Wuhan infusion blood. Is he cruel? Ask a Uyghur. Global Muslim complaints are meager. They dig. Don't mess with the China man. In the chill of night, in your best guarded labs, it's your copyright. But he's in and he grabs China man, China man, Hong Kong's gone up next Taiwan. Can he buy anyone? Let's ask Mr. Joe Biden's son. Too late. Turns out the guy you prayed for already bought and paid for. He's just a China man. Whew. Okay. Okay. That's enough of that. Uh, there's a ton about this in my book from a decade ago now, After America, because I've reached that happy stage in life where every original thought of mine was 10 years ago, if not 20. But nobody listened, or we wouldn't be where we are today. You'd be surprised how many people told me they were listening. Uh, Dick Cheney, uh, George W. Bush, Boris Johnson, Mitt Romney. Anyway, in After America, I compared the rise of China to the most recent transfer of global power in the mid-20th century. Quote, The transition from Pax Britannica to Pax Americana from the old lion to its transatlantic progeny was one of the smoothest transfers of power in history and the practical demonstrable reality of what Winston Churchill called the English-speaking peoples, a Britannic family with America as the prodigal son, but a son nevertheless, and the greatest of all, unquote. 
Uh, that was the smoothest transfer of global power in history, uh, if you overlook uh, occasional blips like sewers, when uh, Washington chose to yank the rug out from under not just the French and the Israelis, but uh, the United Kingdom too, and in particular the pound sterling. be interesting to know if uh, Beijing is planning a sewers moment for America, don't you think? Anyway, uh, as I said, that was the smoothest transfer of global power. I noted that many supposedly serious uh, conservative commentators, Robert Kagan, for example, uh, were arguing that there was no reason America passing the baton of global leadership to China shouldn't go just as smoothly. Here's Robert Kagan a few years ago with a sentence that made me hurl his book across the room. Just as the British could safely cede power to a rising United States, he writes, so Americans could have an easier time ceding some power and influence across the Pacific to a rising democratic China. This is what passes for thinking in Conservative Inc. How could you still be pinning your faith on Chinese democratization as late as 2014? Since then, they've gotten more corrupt, they've gotten more murderous, they have no meaningful law of contract, no meaningful law, in fact, no courts, no justice. They're the number one killers of civilians on the planet. Yet Robert Kagan looks on it as simply uh, a, a, a slightly more exotic version of the British ceding power to America in the mid-20th century. France looks at what's happening as the end of two centuries of what they call Anglo-Saxon dominance since the Battle of Trafalgar. China looks at it as the end of half a millennium of Euro-American dominance and the return of the planet to its natural leadership. Can this be prevented? Well, not if we're not even talking about it. What are we talking about? Well, we're responding to the demands of Black Lives Matter. Look at the streets of Minneapolis, Seattle, Atlanta, Portland. Does anyone actually want to live in a society run by these morons? No. So pretending that we do is just a waste of time. And with Beijing on the march, we don't have time to waste. On May the 6th on this show, May the 6th, I said I agreed with Brit Hume when Brit said that there are two viable narratives. China lied, people died. I agree with that. Or Trump lied, people died, which is the Democrat media line. That's still their line. Uh, I said pick a side because those are the only sides going, and I regret that that advice was not followed. I understand that people loathe Dr. Fauci. I do too. He's insufferable. And he's gotten worse since Trump nixed the COVID press conferences. But as I said on that May the 6th show, Fauci lied, insufficient numbers of people have died, isn't going to go anywhere. And actually, it's not going anywhere uh, right now. Not when the media is still invested in Trump lied, people died, uh, which is uh, relatively easy to grasp. It suits the media because they'd rather not talk about China because, as with all those superhero movies, most of them work for big multinational entertainment conglomerates that are in bed with China. And B, they'd much rather stereotype the right as know-nothings who disdain experts. And believe me, after eight years listening to rube jurists like the ghastly Natalia Combs-Green 
of the DC Superior Court fawning on Michael Mann because some acronymic agency from the federal alphabet soup has quote-unquote exonerated him is something I know all about. Fauci did something terrible when he praised New York's handling of the COVID uh, because by handling of the COVID, he means that Andrew Cuomo handled all those old people into the tender care of the experts and the experts killed them in those full-time 24-7 care facilities. If uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is in jail for delivering victims to Epstein, uh, Cuomo ought to be in jail for delivering up thousands of victims for the coronavirus. So the people who are most vulnerable and most entrusted to the experts... 100%, all those people in their care homes, all died. But Fauci lied, insufficient people died, is never going to work for Trump's base because Trump isn't on board with it. He says he's getting used to wearing a mask. And he's just cancelled the Jacksonville Convention on COVID grounds. You know, a nine-year-old girl in Putnam County, Florida, which is basically just outside Jacksonville, has just died of this thing. Thirteen nuns died of COVID at one convent outside Detroit. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only five dead Florida kids. And let's face it, these nuns were pretty old and useless. China's actions killed those nuns. China's actions kill that nine-year-old girl. How many Americans does China get to kill? Bitching about bloody Fauci is just the usual parochial chump change that makes politics such a waste of time. You know, in 2016, Trump had two bases. He still has two bases. There's the Trump base, that's the people who like the 15-minute shtick about ramps and leather shoes and they love the tweets. And then there's the Trumpism base, which is people who want an end to mass immigration and a decoupling from China, because both have been disastrous uh, for American workers. Now, the Trump base and the Trumpism base are a coalition. They're like any other uh, political coalition. They're like the... Uh, Liberal and the National Party in Australia or, or whatever. They've, they've both got to get something uh, because neither can win without the other. The Trump base can't win without the Trumpism base because his personality alone is problematic. But the Trumpism base can't win without Trump because only that size of personality can push through the media bias to put Trumpism policies into the national conversation. You can't do it with a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or a John Kasich. Uh, so, so Trump is necessary to Trumpism and Trumpism is necessary to Trump. China lied. People died. That would be a great slogan that works for both halves of the coalition. You know, we could actually have an election Imagine this, a Western society that has an election on something consequential, because our principal geostrategic enemy is killing Americans right now. If you want to put it in Trumpian terms, how about a commitment to take back the leadership of the global economy from China? Make America number one again. After two successful and sold out voyages, the Mark Stein cruise is back. 
While the cruise industry has had to take a pause this year, we know good things come to those who wait, and next year's Mark Stein Cruise will be no exception. By then, this new normal will be back to the old normal, or perhaps the new old normal, but with even more appreciation for the camaraderie, fun, and entertainment that we've enjoyed in years past. In October 2021, we'll be setting sail from Rome for a Mediterranean voyage that will take us to amazing ports in Spain, France, Italy, Monaco and Gibraltar on Holland America's new state-of-the-art ship, MS New Stottendam. We invite you to join Mark Stein and his special guests, including Douglas Murray, Michelle Bachman, and John O'Sullivan for 10 days of relaxation, revelry, and review aboard the Mark Stein Cruise 2021. Book your stateroom now by going to www.marksteincruise.com or calling the Cruise and Vacation Authority at 1-844-340-3350. That's www.marksteincruise.com or 1-844-340-3350. We look forward to seeing you aboard. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Great powers waxing and waning has been the underlying theme of this show because uh, we're living through it. Here's a poem by W.H. Auden I've always liked. As a matter of fact, uh, stray lines kept popping into my head over recent months and it suddenly dawned that they were all from the same piece. It's called The Fall of Rome, but you realise early on that there are all kinds of anachronisms, like a clerk writing on a pink piece of paper. Obviously, they didn't have pink paper in the Roman Empire. So you think, well, Auden was writing this a couple of years after the Second World War. Uh, Maybe he had in mind Rome, capital of the Kingdom of Italy, uh, which uh, voted in June 1946 to abolish the monarchy and become a republic. Or maybe he was thinking of post-war Britain, uh, whose imperial vulnerability... Uh, and imperial overstretch uh, the war had exposed through the Japanese occupation of Singapore and Burma and so forth. Or maybe he was thinking back to the Habsburg Empire 30 years earlier. Or maybe he was thinking of them all and positing a general theory of civilizational ruin. But whatever he had in mind, a lot of the imagery rings strangely familiar to our own time. Antifa mobs holed up in abandoned precinct houses is the merest variation on outlaws in mountain caves. Uh, the line, fantastic grow the evening gowns, uh, could stand for the red carpet pre-show on any lousy awards night of activist celebrities. Revenue agents pursuing tax absconders through the sewers of provincial towns of the feds of the Russia investigation, uh, doing their show me the man and I'll show you the process crime routine and showing up at dawn in the full Robocop. And the mutinying Marines, those Atlanta and Minneapolis coppers failing to turn up, walking off the job, opting for early retirement. So a lot of weirdly familiar imagery in this poem, working up to a penultimate verse which sounds like it came from a mayoral press conference. Uh, First published in 1947 and dedicated to dear old Cyril Connolly by W.H. Auden, The Fall of Rome. The piers are pummeled by the waves. In a lonely field, the rain lashes an abandoned train. 
Outlaws fill the mountain caves. Fantastic grow the evening gowns. Agents of the fisk pursue, absconding tax defaulters through the sewers of provincial towns. Private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. Cerebrotonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines, but the muscle-bound marines mutiny for food and pay. Caesar's double bed is warm, as an unimportant clerk writes, I do not like my work, on a pink official form. Unendowed with wealth or pity, little birds with scarlet legs, sitting on their speckled eggs, I each flu-infected city. Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss, silently and very fast. A poem from Me to You by W. H. Auden, The Fall of Rome. And uh, notice until we get to those last uh, two stanzas about how basically each quatrain contrasts uh, something that's still staggering on uh, with something falling apart elsewhere. The contrasts until we get to those two ultimate stanzas and that line about birds eyeing each flu-infected city. And then the final quatrain about what's going on altogether elsewhere, the herds of reindeer on the move. In other words, we in Rome must fall with Rome, for we made our choices. But altogether elsewhere, there are creatures and men who made other choices, and our fall is not theirs. Both the close-up, the birds in the flu-infected cities, and the panoramic view, the reindeer far from Rome, remind us that, as always, the wider world is utterly indifferent to our self-inflicted catastrophe. <laughs> Mark's mailbox is on the air. Ellen Thacker from Virginia, who uh, joined us only a couple of uh, weeks back. Uh, Ellen says, I'm a new member and have thoroughly enjoyed the Mark Stein show this summer, but have to ask, in these recent and difficult days of COVID, quarantine and social chaos, what still brings you joy? Thank you, Ellen. Glad to have you with us. I think our only other Ellen in the Stein Club is a francophone, so you may be our first Anglo-Ellen. If there are other Anglo-Ellens uh, spotted around the map, uh, I apologise uh, if I've got that wrong, but uh, you, you, you might be. But and it doesn't matter, even if you're our 47th, 138th Ellen, we're glad to uh, have you with us. There are plenty of things that still bring me joy every day. Uh, the fine poem by W. H. Jordan I just read. The various versions of whispering I played the other day. Our tales for our time, going all the way back to the very first one by Conan Doyle. I mentioned the death of the uh, Empress Eugenie uh, a week or two back, and it reminded me that among her legacies is the dish Peche à l'Imperatrice, uh, which I hadn't had in years. It's one of uh, Monsieur Escoffier's classic desserts, I believe. 
And so I immediately got a craving for that that I had to satisfy, and that suddenly brought me joy. If we're ever again allowed to host a Mark Stein Christmas show live on stage, we'll maybe uh, serve it to the audience there. Um, now I've got another craving for it. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, two big points here, two big points. Um, first, the point of conservatism is to leave enough space for life. The leftist worldview kills life because it subordinates life to politics. Um, so as my friend Tal Backman was writing about just the other day, you see an orchestra, but you can no longer hear the Bach or hear the Mozart because you're trying to figure out how many Muslims and transgenders are in the string section. That's the death of art and the death of life. Because when everything's political, that's what happens. So people who refresh drudge if that shifty little weasel is still around, people who refresh drudge every 45 seconds, people who listen to talk radio or watch cable news 24-7 aren't conservative because conservatism requires life. It doesn't have to be tap dancing. Uh, Rush has his sports and people moan and whine when he comes on and he's talking about uh, some sporting encounter he happens to have been struck by. Uh, and they're missing the point. Without the sports, he wouldn't be Rush. He'd just be another boring dweeb who thinks the be-all and end-all is whether uh, John Kasich or Phil Graham is up two points in Iowa or Maine or wherever. It's because he's got a rich life that he's an original thinker on the tiny bit of it that's politics. And I'm not diminishing the seriousness of what we face right now. It's violent and getting more violent. And eventually, everywhere's going to look like the lawn uh, of that St. Louis house with the couple waving the guns around. But what were they protecting? Something beautiful that, in Ellen's phrase, brought them joy. The house they devoted themselves to restoring. Uh, that's my second point. Defending beauty is important right now when we're being told that our entire civilizational inheritance is violent and evil and tainted and has to go. And that is actually the precise inversion of reality. We have listeners to this show, not everywhere, but most parts of the world. Uh, so look around you. It's not possible to get through the course of the day without seeing or hearing or tasting something that, in Ellen's phrase, brings you joy and that is part of our civilizational inheritance. Might be a painting, might be a folk tune, might be a glorious cathedral or a plain, well-proportioned log house. Might be just a little piece of well-put-together peach and ice cream in honour of an ill-fated empress nobody cares about except for one little segment on The Mark Stein Show. All these things are beautiful. Uh, they all were created... Uh, by those who came before us, the builders of our civilization, And that beauty is what the howling mob are at war with. They can't sculpt a statue, they can only graffiti it. And because they can make nothing, it is necessary for them to destroy everything. And they're having a jolly good go at it. But there is so much that it will take them time. And in the meantime, whatever is your bag, it's all still out there. If you live with the mob's ugliness 24-7, it will infect you, it will uglify you. So on the gloomier days, of which there are rather a lot at the moment, say, OK, 
I'm going to set aside an hour to, to actively to seek out joy. And that's so you don't, it doesn't even have to be a full hour. It can just be a short poem. It can just be a short piece of music. It can just be 10 minutes. But it's important because that actually is the civilizational fault line that we're on right now. We are acting in, like that couple in St. Louis, in defense of the beautiful against a mob that is the mob of the ugly. Mark Stein's Last Call. Around the world, the Chinese coronavirus continues to kill. The name Dobby Dobson takes me back to a very happy time in my life. This was his reggae-fied version of an old Brooke Benton song. There was a big, big hit for Dobby D in Jamaica and the Caribbean, and a somewhat smaller hit for him on the UK charts, Endlessly. Higher than the highest mountain And deeper than the deepest sea comes to an end sooner than you think. Six decades ago, Dobby Dobson was a student at Kingston College in Jamaica and wrote his first song for a biology teacher everyone in the all-boys class was hopelessly in love with. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, this is Dobby's first song. He did this for what, your biology teacher? Biology teacher, Miss Sharan. Miss Sharan. Uh, I wonder how Miss Sharan look good, right? This one was a fabulous teacher, you know. Really, the most shapely legs you could find. I mean, she had a, a whole classroom of boys just drooling, you know. I mean, at that time, there was nothing called um, child abuse where teachers were molesting kids. Um, we just sat down there and we just looked at Miss Serrant and we, we just did to <laughs> Yeah, George is with really the teacher named Miss Dawn. <laughs> In the meantime, we're going to play Cry Little Cry. This is Bob. This is Dobby Dobson's first song. There's nothing more. You sure you was writing this to your teacher? Yeah, man. I was writing it to my teacher. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had delusions that, you know, my teacher was interested in me too. Foolish me. 
No, well, hey. Sometimes you need them things, you know, as a young man, you know, you need to feel that kind of feeling, you know, because, you know, the people who yeah. never had that kind of feeling, you have to wonder what kind of life they live. Half a century after that song and dozens of others, the Double D joined the OD when Her Majesty's Governor-General of Jamaica, Sir Patrick Allen, inducted Dobby Dobson into the Order of Distinction. So tell me, how, how, how does this uh, make you feel? I know you said you've been thinking about this and never thought you would get it, but so you have now. How, how much has it changed your thinking your life and your, your your way of life at the moment how much you, you reckon you it's really it really it, I, I can tell you how it makes me it made me feel to hear mm -hmm. that i was included um there's a, a, a half of me was humbled mm -hmm. very humbled to you know I, I received it and the other half of me was totally elated way up in the stratosphere so, whoa <laughs> finally big shot now I'm not in a position to maintain you The way that you're accustomed to Can't take you out to fancy places Like other fellas that I know can do That became his theme song and his nickname. The Loving Pauper enriched a lot of couples' lives on the dance floors of the West Indies. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 78, singer and producer Dobby Dobson. I don't know what Stephen Sussman's nickname was, but it certainly wasn't The Loving Pauper. He wasn't a pauper because he won some of the biggest payouts in American courtroom history for cases he took on a contingency basis. And when the judge orders the opposing party to pay out a billion dollars, the line of prospective clients outside your door isn't really interested in how loving you are. Here's Stephen Sussman recalling his first big win. Well, okay, not his first big win, but his first mega big win. The first victory I remember was in the Cargator Box case, because it was a big case and it lasted, the trial lasted a long time. So it was like uh, a three and a half month trial. It was a big victory at the time. It was like $300 million, $400 million verdict. And that was, I think, in 1980. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's great fun. Actually, he's being a little modest there. I think the final number in the corrugated container case, which was about um, corrugated cardboard boxes, I think the final number was $550 million, or about $2 billion in today's terms. Uh, but what's uh, $150 million here or there uh, when you're rounding up and down? At that time, it was the largest ever antitrust verdict. A few years later, in 1990, Stephen Sussman was showing a young lawyer he'd hired round the office, and the guy pointed at an irregularly cut piece of cardboard hanging on the wall and asked whether it was a souvenir from the corrugated container lawsuit. And Sussman said, no, bleep face, it's a Rauschenberg, as in 
the famous and famously expensive pop artist whose works sell for up to eight figures. But the young bleepface had a point. You've got to win some pretty big cases to afford pieces of cardboard that expensive. Stephen Sussman looked on law as an entrepreneurial activity. Yeah, we hire the best lawyers in the world, and they are most of them are entrepreneurial. Uh, which is a characteristic you want of a trial lawyer because that's basically a lawsuit is an enterprise. You have to, it's a business. You have to make, you have raw materials and you make something, a product which you go to give to the jury and hopefully it sells. That's one thing he certainly knew how to do. Just three of his big cases won him $2 billion. And yet it was a small ending for a great career. A month into the coronavirus lockdown, he had an accident while out bicycling and was in hospital for a week before being moved to a rehabilitation centre. He made good progress until at the end of June in that rehabilitation centre, the Covid came a-calling. It sounds like a case for a discount mall ambulance chaser rather than for the guy who took Texas Instruments for a billion bucks. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 79, a killer plaintiff's attorney, Stephen Sussman. is the coronavirus on and on from Jamaica to Texas to Mumias, the capital of the Luya kingdom of Wanga. That's where Charles Bukeko was born. He went on to create one of the most popular characters on Kenyan television. Currently working with a, well, a program, a local product, program been doing it for seven years, called Papa Shirandula. This one guy who has four wives, three wives and one girlfriend, Mzungu girlfriend. And strangely enough is that the, the wives don't know what he does for life. But again, Papa Shirandula is, um, is not quite bad. He's not a bad, bad person. The only problem he has is that he lies so much. As sitcom staffs all over the world have come to learn, when your character is beloved, he's assumed to be you and you get swallowed by him. But Charles Bukeko did other things apart from Papa Shirandula. You can see him very briefly in films like The Constant Gardener with Rafe Fiennes. And if you've been in South Africa in recent years, you'll almost certainly have seen his Vodacom ad for... Uh, cell phones, where he plays an African dictator, and the joke is he can't see what the fuss about the new Vodacom mobile is all about, because all its features he already has. For example, why does he need a mobile to tell him the weather when he already has a man running alongside his dictatorial limousine to tell him how hot it is outside? Hey, Kaiser! How hot is it out there? Morning, sir! Is it? We've been having it! <laughs> Likewise, why does he need a ringtone on his mobile? Right now, whenever his telephone rings, he has a live band on hand to play. Yomo, call me.
catchphrase in those Vodacom ads, we've been having it. Eventually someone thought, you know, Charles Pukeko's dictatorial persona is so much fun, why don't we give him a similar role in a full-length feature? It was called The Captain of Nakara. I saw it and it was a stinker. Don't take my word for it. The director, Bob Nyanja, says he's not proud of it and only did it because he got funding from the European Union to make it in a hurry. So the international big time never quite happened for Charles Bukeko, but they loved him in Kenya. Kenyans are still coming to terms with the news that the popular TV actor and comedian Papa Shirandula is dead. Papa Shirandula, whose real name is Charles Bukeko, died on Saturday morning. At the hospital, they told him he had pneumonia and sent him home. But he'd been having it. The COVID, that is. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus eight days after his 58th birthday, Charles Bukeko. We've been having it! <laughs> when the Bureau's gift to the world. That will do it for today's show. I'll be back with our latest tale for our time this evening. Uh, the Prisoner of Windsor, we've only been going for, I think, uh, five or six episodes, so plenty of time to uh, catch up and uh, check that out, as I hope you will do. Uh, I'll also be here for a Song of the Week special on Sunday. Uh, don't forget Kathy Shadle's movie date, which is on for Saturday. In lieu of any real movies in movie theatres, the new James Bond film, which was supposed to open in the spring, got postponed till the autumn. Autumn's off. It's been rescheduled for spring 2021. Thank you, Chairman Xi. Such a cold finger. Have a groovy weekend. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
rights reserved.